So good afternoon. My name is Anthony Ania. I'm an attorney at law with the offices of Ania, Scanlon, and Sirignano. And we have offices in both White Plains and Somers, New York. I'm actually a certified elder law attorney, and we are a boutique elder law and estate planning firm. And uh, today, I'm very honored and privileged to have as my guest on this uh, edition of the podcast, Talking Seniors, Joan Nemo, who is a certified and licensed social worker, and she is a care consultant with the Alzheimer's Association. And uh, Joan has many, many years of experience as a social worker, in particular in working with the families of individuals that have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And sometimes the, 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 the actual diagnosis may not be certain Alzheimer's, it could be dementia or senile dementia or even Lewy body dementia, but the families turn to the Alzheimer's Association for advice and counsel as to what they should be doing. And obviously, Joan, I think you can attest when that diagnosis of Alzheimer's comes to a family member, the children, the spouse, et cetera, it's quite worrisome and quite troubling. And I know that you've encountered that for many years. So tell us what you normally recommend during that initial call to the Alzheimer's Association by somebody who has a family member that's just been diagnosed? Well, usually what we want to do is get a person focused on what, what can be done. It's, as you've said, it's very upsetting to get any kind of negative diagnosis, but because it's um, Alzheimer's or any type of dementia, and there are many types of dementia, but if it's Alzheimer's, we don't have all the answers and that makes it very difficult. So we always want someone to sit down. And one of the first things we recommend is that you take a deep breath and then set up your care team because that's, that's crucial because you want your, the loved one, both care partners, we call them, we call care partners, the person who is with the disease and, and the person who's helping them. We want everyone to have as much support as possible because yes, it's horrible to get a diagnosis, but it doesn't mean the end of the world. People can still have a good quality of life and that's what we wanna do. That's why we want everyone to have the best quality of life possible. So we talk about setting up a care team because you can't do it by yourself. So I would start with um, your medical team, your primary care physician. Do you have a geriatrician? Do you have other um, comorbidities? Do you need a cardiologist, a neurologist? But get the information. Because also with different types of dementia, there's different, there's different uh, nuances. So we want to get um, we want to get everybody on the same team. And the crucial part is what usually or often when you get first get the diagnosis, the person with the dementia is early on in the fairly early on the disease. You're just be you're beginning to notice things. So you want to go and find out what's going on. That person should be included in all decisions. We want the person with dementia as all of us do, we want to make decisions about our own lives. I, you know, I don't want somebody telling me what to do. <laughs> I'll be honest. You know, I want I want to have to be able to make those decisions. So you want to sit down first with your medical team, and um, also with a legal team. Is that which, that medical team that you're referring to would also include a neurologist, 
right? Generally, a neurologist would be involved if there's been a diagnosis of Alzheimer's type dementia. And also, and you know, one a geriatric thing, psychiatrist, because there, um, if, if you need some medications, because you want everyone working together and you want everyone on the same page. And one of the things that I've noticed with Alzheimer's that there are varying degrees. So you can have somebody diagnosed with Alzheimer's and they could be perfectly lucid, well-oriented, maybe have some mild short-term forgetfulness. So the getting them involved in the decision-making and also getting them to take the steps now while they still have capacity to do things that they should be doing, like executing a power of attorney, signing a will, doing a trust, uh, doing elder law planning and long-term care planning to shelter and protect their assets. I think when you say care team, it's just not focused on the, the medical and physical. No, uh, no, that's the next step. Yeah, I was about to say that's the next step. Then to get to a consult, an elder law attorney, someone who can, because you want to protect what you have. You want to make sure you have enough to take care of yourself and your loved ones. And, you, and your spouse. In many right. cases, your spouse, you, the last thing you want to do if you've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's is to say, oh my God, I'm going to leave my spouse destitute now because all of my savings are going to go to my care. You know, it's exactly. a nursing exactly. home is one hundred eighty dollars to $220,000 a year. You know, right. what's going to happen to my wife or my husband, you know, because of my condition? Exactly. So it, it is a, a plan that really takes in all different areas of the care, right. physical, emotional, medical, financial, and, and you need to bring in all the right people to, to do that. Exactly, exactly. And as far, you know, with the financial, as you say, if you have, you know, a spouse, you want to make sure that person is taken care of, or if it's your adult child, you know, we, you want to make sure that those things, and you also want to make sure legally that your wishes are followed with a with a power of attorney or healthcare proxy. That's so important to discuss that with, with someone because you may think you know what the person wants. And these are difficult decisions. These are difficult discussions to have. So, you know, so tell us a little bit about, you know, we, we've all have heard of the Alzheimer's Association and the wonderful work that they do and the great organization that they are. But tell us as a care consultant, what do you do in terms of what are the things that you do? Do you help coordinate putting the team together? Or do you, for example, just say to the individuals, these are the things that we need to focus on and go over with them? Or do you help them actually put the team together? We, um, as a care consultant, if someone comes in and talks to me, um, we, I would go over some of these things about uh, generally about care team. And then I, I can give resources. I can say, you know, you know, where do you live? In, and here, here are, you know, six elder law attorneys who are in your, right. your area or something, or do, or, and we have, we have lists of things. We can't, we can't recommend one person. That right. would, yeah, yeah, yeah. That so you have, you have geriatric care managers on your list. You we have, have geriatric care managers. Yeah. Uh, we have doctors, we have psychologists, gerontologists. Yeah. Yes, we give people the resources and we help them and we encourage them. And we also, uh, I also, you know, validate that person for taking that step because it's very hard. It's very hard to take these steps when, when you're dealing with it, but you want, your, you want everyone to be protected. And I also encourage people to, as I say, talk 
to talk to each other, to find out what the person wants. And also one of the hard conversations when you're talking about, because down the line, is I also ask, I ask people not to make what I call the promise that, you know, I will never, that you will never, you will, you will stay home as long as you're alive. Uh, I've, I've heard that promise in the last 35 years of doing this. I've probably heard that promise a thousand times, 10,000 times. But the reality is that in, there's no way of knowing or guaranteeing that anybody could stay at home. You know, people uh, as they age and whether they have Alzheimer's or not, they develop different conditions. And some of those conditions just can't be treated at home. It's just impossible. Exactly. Sometimes they're medical conditions that, that need to be taken care of. We yeah. also have to think about the caregiver. I have seen right. the stress level in the caregiver go up. I, in my past, I've worked at, in, in nursing facilities. And um, I, I can think of one couple who I loved, but um, the, the wife was reluctant about her husband coming to the facility, but she was, she was getting sick. She was, we, we were, she was almost hospitalized. She was in distress and everything. And so she wanted to give it a try. And what happened was that because he was being cared for, someone else was got him up and got him dressed and he was eating and he was in a closed environment where he was comfortable. When they had time together, they had good time together. Right. They listened to music. They, they interacted. And she wasn't always worried about, oh, did he eat? Did he, does he need this? Does he need that? They could interact not the way they used to, but close to it. And, so, and that's so important that we, we, we keep the emotional and the, that part of it alive too. And that's why we like to, with the association, we like to educate people. We have a lot of educational programs right now. Most of them are on, you know, virtual, but we will get back to in person. And, um, but we talk about with, when someone has dementia, they um, sometimes communication skills, we need to work on communication skills. And it can be very simple as a person goes along the continuum. You know, you and I could go to a restaurant and look at a menu and, you know, order it, order it lunch. But someone, as you go along the continuum of dementia, of Alzheimer's, you may want to say, oh, would you like a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich for lunch? To, to make things, and that lowers the anxiety for a person because, because it may not, be more difficult for them to make a choice out of a right. hundred items on a menu. It's too too confusing. Too much. too much. And then as we go along, and it's and it's some of those little things because when you develop Alzheimer's or any type of dementia, there's an anxiety level that goes up. No question. Because you're not processing, you're not processing, especially in the beginning. It's very difficult. I. I have, I'm an old fashioned person. You know what, you know what this is? This is a pen, correct? And you know what to do with it. But you might, as you start in the disease, pick this up and look at this and say, I used to know what to do with this. Let's see. No. <laughs> that's, I know that's not right, but I don't know what to do with it. And for, for a person who is going through that, I've done this a million times, but I get a little knot in the pit of my stomach when I do that because I I can't imagine what that's like, and that's what a person in early stage uh, that that must be horrible. So right. let, let me ask you a question about 
Sure. The family and the family involvement. So do these care consultations also involve like the children? Are they part of it as well? If they want to. I have I have had consultations with four and five members of a family, which right. is wonderful because but part of that care team, once you have your your medical and your legal, you have your support team for your everyday. And who are the people that you need to talk to? If you're if it's a spouse, you know, obviously your spouse. And what about the adult children? Right. Many of them want to be involved and they need to know what's going on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you, you don't want them to be getting secondhand information. They should understand, you know, what the process of going through Alzheimer's is like and what are the care and the needs that the individual diagnosed with it is going to have over the continuum continuum of time that they're progressing with the disease because it is a progressive disease. I mean, it, right. We don't we don't have the answers yet, which is right. frustrating to many of us. But we um, we're doing a tremendous amount of research. Right. And we're getting more. Well, the, the, the research and the information that they're getting seems to be, you know, increasing in leaps and, and bounds lately. I mean, there's more and more coming out about you know Alzheimer's disease and what they're discovering and learning about it. It's amazing. So maybe in our lifetimes we'll see not a cure, but a way of stabilizing it and reducing the rapidity, you know, the, the rapid nature of its decline. Because that, you know, that's the biggest problem is that each person declines at a different rate. Some right. People Some can, people are sort of a gradual decline. Some right. people go in steps. And that can also be the type of dementia. If so, often if someone has what we call um, vascular dementia, vascular, which is a series of small strokes, then often you see the the step when someone has but yeah. Alzheimer's people that, can plateau for a long time what i've noticed is frontal lobe dementia can be quite serious and rapid yes uh, the decline and also lewy body dementia which is sometimes confused for alzheimer's dementia i mean there is a, a very difficult to ascertain the difference between the two in fact i was on a panel with a neurologist in New York City discussing Alzheimer's. And the doctor said that they find that it's often misdiagnosed, that people will have Lewy body dementia, but they've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's type dementia. So, right. It's a, it's and the medications we do about. have now for, and we have nothing that cures it, but we have the medications that, that help the symptoms of it. It may help the symptoms for Alzheimer's, but it's not going to help it for Lewy bodies or frontal temporal. Right. And that's and sometimes I mean, I, I forget how many different types of dementia there are. There's 20 or 30 or something like that. But um, and and sometimes people have what we call mixed dementia. So they might have Alzheimer's and vascular. Or, or they can have Parkinson's and have Parkinson's type dementias as well. I mean, it's just exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, so many causes of dementia today that it's, it's amazing. Yeah. We don't know. The one, and, but we're learning more and more. And that's the, the yes, the we are. And, and one of the things we can do for, for Alzheimer's excuse me, is um, a healthy lifestyle. We've done a great deal of research, the pointer studies and a few other uh, finger studies and um, that we have found. And, you know, some of it we've heard already healthy diet, sort of a Mediterranean type, more fruits and veggies and stuff, exercise, cognitive stimulation. And what I find that they, I, you know, it's 20 years that this, these studies have gone on for 20 or 30 years, 
but social involvement, social engagement keeps right. us more active. Right. To, to be isolated and alone. And that's really something that people have suffered with because of COVID. You know, yes. You know, where people are not as social. And this has had really an impact, a detrimental impact on seniors because their socialization has been limited because of COVID. And then we, of course, heard the stories about seniors in nursing homes not being able to leave their rooms because they were quarantined, et cetera. So I have I have had I have had um, clients that they couldn't see their loved one for six or eight months and someone with dementia who's in a, in a facility and, and horrible. Horrible. Somewhat, they just don't understand it. They, the, the brain cells, it's, I always tell people when someone has dementia, it's not a choice. It's right. not someone making a choice to, you know, like a, a toddler or a teenager who makes a choice to give you a hard time. It's someone, this is the brain cells are not communicating the way they should. And you you so mentioned it, something just interesting right now about hard time. And, but a lot of what we try to do and help clients to a certain extent extent depends on the the willingness of the patient to cooperate and i know that you know for example we sometimes have patients who want to continue driving even though they forget where they're going and how do you help the family deal with that issue in particular you know giving up the keys to the car which is a that, very complex issue it's very complex because when you think about it driving when we, when you first got your license, when you first got, you know, when you were 16 or 18 or whatever, when you first got the license, it was a sense of independence. I can take myself any place I want to go. And to take that away, it's another loss for someone with dementia. They've had so many losses. And now you're saying I can't drive myself. I've been doing that for 50 years. So it's, it's, it's a loaded question. And, um, Sometimes we often work with the, you can often, the family can work with the physician and ask them to, um, I know here in Westchester, we have, uh, and probably in many other places, we, you can get a driving evaluation. Yeah, at Burke Rehabilitation used to do that, and I'm sure they still do it. They still do it. They yeah. still do it, and it's wonderful. But getting the, per getting the person there can be very difficult. And then, Some, and then taking the keys away. That, yeah. that could be a very traumatic and contentious uh, event. Yeah. And I know people who have, um, you know, the car has been in the shop for the last six or eight months. Right. And it's okay. I, I call them, I call, I call it a fiblet. You know, if you take the spark plug or something, I'm not a car person, but take the spark plug out of the car and it doesn't work. That's one way of doing it. And the person will hopefully eventually forget that. And that's a fiblet. That's something that's going to reduce anxiety. It doesn't hurt the person. But, um, and some people, depending on where they are in the continuum, you can talk, you can say, you know, or as I said, I, I have known some physicians who will be the bad guy and say, you need to go for a driving test. It depends on, on you know, the physician, some people will do that and they'll write a prescription for it and say, you know, this is something that you need to do because, and also if you, if you do take the keys away, you can't just take them away. You have to give the person an alternative. You can't drive, but we'll set up an Uber account or, uh, 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 or, you know, um, 
Westchester has paratransit, which is very good. You know, a lot of the places have different kinds of, but to give, but to just take away and not replace it with something would be very difficult for anyone. So we want to say this is, and you know, sometimes you can say, I, you know, it, you if you talk to someone, it might be, is it safe for other people? So, you know, one of the things that I think we're quite fortunate with in New York is that we have a, a very robust Medicaid home care program yes. and, and a very good Medicaid home care program. But as you may know, there are changes coming to it. And the biggest change that probably is going to happen, if not on April 1st, let's say by July 1st, is that there's going to finally be a 30-month look-back period for any asset transfers made to uh, obtain Medicaid. So in the past, there's always been, and for a, a good decade now, if not more, there's been a 60-month a look-back period for nursing home Medicaid, five years, but there has been no look-back period for home care Medicaid. However, we've been told that on April 1st that it's going to be kicking in and there'll be a 30-month look-back period. Do you talk to the clients and their families about bringing in care in the house? And right now, oh, the, right, and right now, the ability to do that and not create a look-back period is still available. Now, if you're, if you're, this is much more important for your single person. Uh, if you have a spouse, you could always transfer assets to the spouse, but that may require that the spouse do spousal refusal for for their spouse to receive Medicaid which opens up the door of Medicaid suing you uh, for the spousal refusal. Whereas if we can get them on Medicaid, sometimes we even get both the husband and wife on home care Medicaid or transfer the assets out of both of their names. Right now we can do so without any look back period, which is extremely valuable because that care at home could run if you were going to pay for it privately anywhere from seven to $12,000 a month. Right. Right, expensive yes. to get care at home. So is that's one of the things you discuss with them about home care? Do, do you go out and, for example, do an assessment of the premises? Do you go to their homes or is it just all at your at your office or virtually? I, well, right now it, it's where we're, we can't go out. And right. but um, BC, as we say before COVID, um, I love doing home visits because it gives me an idea of how the person is living, what the issues are. I mean, you walk into my home and you can tell a lot about me. Right. You can walk into anyone's home and you can see how things are. So I think, I think home visits are invaluable when you can do them. And I have, I have encouraged people to look into the Medicaid, um, certainly in New York State, as you said, we have a good um, program here, but to look into it and there's so many people who I work with, and this is your this is your area, not mine. But um, I always refer to someone who knows what they're talking about with the Medicaid, because um, people go, "Oh no, I can't do, I can't do it." And I say, "Did you consult with someone?" Well, that's the key. They, you know, Medicaid, like any other federal or state program, has a, a multitude of intricacies, and you have to consult with somebody that's you know quite familiar with the program. I mean, for example, okay. uh, from at our firm, we probably process anywhere from four to 500 Medicaid home care pro, uh, applications a year. 
Yeah, we do a a lot of Medicaid home care because our clients are demanding it. They want it. I mean, they they don't want to go to a facility. So we're seeing more and more people applying for Medicaid home care. And that's uh, less, less people applying for Medicaid nursing home, believe it or not. You know? Really? I mean, it's only like a last resort. There's no place we can go. We, we got to put mom or dad in the nursing home. So what do we do? But generally, the first thing they want to do is keep mom and dad at home with care at, at home. So the if, Medicaid home care program yeah. has been very good for that. It's been very helpful to these seniors. And I think it's also helpful to the state because it's a lot less expensive to keep a senior at home than to pay for the senior to be in a nursing home. Oh, and definitely. Also, and I think it's also better health-wise for the individuals. I mean, think of all those poor people that got, you know, basically quarantined in a nursing home for six right. to eight months. Now, nobody could visit. Whereas if you're at home, you can have your children come visit. They're wearing masks, they're socially distancing, et cetera. Yeah, I, so, I think, and it certainly, Early on, I mean, eventually, sometimes we get to the point where we don't that someone needs to have for, have more care, and then they then that's different. But I think the the home care is a great start. It's it it helps the person with dementia, and it helps the caregiver. Right. It gives that person a break. A break. They can go for a walk. They can take a shower. They can go shopping by themselves. Right. They can have lunch with a friend. There's there's exactly. a, there's a lot of opportunities to socialize with that. And, right. and if the individual that needs the care is well enough, he can go or she can go as well. So exactly, and right. and uh, we we like to work with people with with caregivers because um, you know getting the right match can be good. That if someone is, uh, I always say, well, you know, is is your husband a card player? Find somebody who plays cards, or is your does the person like to does your loved one like to walk? Find someone who'll take them out for a walk for a while, and just because that's. Again, those are the kinds of things that you think about yeah. when, you know. Well, it's a quality of life. I mean, that's what exactly. we're looking for. You know, we're, we're trying to, to create a quality of life for the person that needs the care. And at the same token, also allow for a quality of life for their caregiver family members as well. Right. I mean, generally, right. even where there is a home care aide, the family is quite intimately involved. They're, they're, they're going to see the parents two, three, four times a week. They're buying food. They're doing a lot of different other things as well. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's a it's a very difficult task. Taking care of a senior is not easy. No, no. And and I guess my philosophy for for just life has been everyone should have the best quality of life possible. And it's different. It's you know I, I keep saying you know what I wanted when I was twenty. It's not the quality of life that I want now. I'm not 20 anymore. Right. It's and, you know, what, and, and, and what's good for one person may not be good for another person. I mean, exactly. And I we always say if you've, if you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've met one person with Alzheimer's. I agree. Their, their story, their life is completely different. I mean, right. I, mean I have clients. That sometimes I'm amazed. You know, I've, been, I've been told they have Alzheimer's and they've been diagnosed three, four years. And I can put them through a battery of questions and they answer them all appropriately. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm catching them at the good part of the day, right? That's another thing too, when you're looking at an individual, there are parts of the day where they may be better than other parts of the day. So you have to- Exactly. And also people, we tend to pull ourselves together in certain, I know I've spoken to physicians who've said, you know, when someone walked into the office, they looked fine, no problems. Because 
you know, that's what we've done all our lives, kind of pull ourselves together for, for those kinds of things. Well, so, and also, if you do have dementia, you have, uh, you learn what I call masking techniques, where you can mask the dementia. I mean, I've met many seniors that would refuse to answer a question. They would say, like, I'd say to them, well, you know, what's the name of the baseball team in, that plays in the Bronx? And they would say, come on, everybody knows that. You know, exactly. you're, you're joking. You're, you're not, that's not a real question. I'm not even going to bother answering it. But right. They may not remember, right? Right. But they've learned to cover. And, and we, we do that all the time right. when you think about it. We do it when we, we, may, we may not want to answer or something, but, but that, that often in, in the beginning that happens. And it's a way of, of dealing with something that is kind of frightening to them. So I think what my audience has learned through this podcast today is that the Alzheimer's Association is not just there doing research on Alzheimer's, but they're also providing resources to the families and those individuals that have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or any real form of dementia. Right. I mean, if somebody comes and they have dementia and it's not a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you're still going to help them. Of course, of right. course. And and we're here, first of all, everything we do is for free right? because we have grants and, you know, all that kind of stuff and a lot of fundraising. <laughs> but um, we do, um, besides the care consultations that we do, uh, we also have, as I said, education programs so that if someone is um, having behaviors, as we call them, but it, what, what we call behaviors is a communication. If someone does something that seems you know, out of the norm, right. they're trying to tell you something, but they don't have the words. So we learn how to interpret. We have, um, we, we have uh, a program called Healthy Living. And we talk about those things that I mentioned, the food. and Dieting, the, exercise, things of that sort. The cognitive, you know. The testing and the. Challenging ourselves, you know, learn it. Everybody says learn a second language or whatever, you know, but whatever interests you, exercise. You know, if someone told me to exercise that I had to run a mile, I'd go, uh, I don't think so. But there are other things that I like to do. So, you know, we have to, again, we, we personalize it. We also have for people with, with, um, Alzheimer's and dementias, we have social engagement programs. Right now, we're again, because of COVID, we're doing most things on Zoom, but we're planning to get back in person. And we have art programs. We have um, where you sit and it's the caregiver and the care receiver and you do an art program. Or um, one of the things that I'm very involved in uh, is our Sunday social, where we we have lunch with the caregiver and the care receiver. We serve them lunch. We have possibly a musician or someone and we sing and we dance and we just have a non-stressful fun afternoon that's and that and that's what and that's what people need because it's and and I have found wonderful friendships have started at these at these events because they're people who are going through the same stresses right so, so if so a, a lot a, of the a lot of the programs you have are not only for the individual that has the Alzheimer's or the dementia, but the family members to let them you know, know what they can do to cope with the condition, how they can best treat the condition, et cetera. Right, we also have support groups. We have, a, we have caregiver support groups so that you're meeting with other people who are going through the same, the same things thing. that you are. And that's invaluable because I always say those are the experts. 
because you're going through it right now. And we they, have. They, they've been in the trenches. I mean, exactly. Right? The, the caregivers have been in the trenches. They, they see it day to day. They know what's happening. And sometimes they can react the right way. And maybe sometimes they don't. Well, Joan, you know I want to thank you for being the guest today. And, and again, it's been my uh, pleasure. I, I, I want to congratulate the, uh, the Alzheimer's Association uh, for the great works that they do. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to have you on my podcast, Talking Seniors. And I look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. Thank you so much for inviting me. And right. know that the Alzheimer's Association is here to help everyone. We have an 800 number that you can call 24 hours. you want to give that 800 number out oh, if you have it? It's 800-272-3900. And it's, it's working 24 hours a day. If you, have a, if you have a question at three o'clock in the morning, there will be a qualified person at the other end of that phone to answer what you need. So, and, uh, and the Westchester chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, you want to give us the address of where it's located? And well, we're in, we're in purchase at, oh gosh, on Westchester Avenue, but right now we're not in the office. Right. But if you need anything, you call the 800 number, you ask for a care consultation, and you'll wind up with myself or my colleague in Westchester. And we can, and that's, that's every, you know, the things go through that 800 number and they'll, they'll, They'll connect us and we, we can help whatever. We're here. We're here to help everyone. Thank you very much, Joan. And again, it's a pleasure having this uh, time with you. Thank you very oh, much. My pleasure, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.